Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to the book of Acts. We've been studying the book of Acts for quite some time, and we're in Acts 8, verses 9 to 25. Acts chapter 8. Today we'll look at verses 9 to 25. Let's turn to the Lord. Father God, this is your word, inspired and errant, able to change our lives, allow us to know about you, how we ought to act, the things about you and about your world that we ought to believe. We ask, Father, that you would guide what I say to be accurate, and guide our hearts, mold us, change us, transform us for your glory and our betterment. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Her name is Shirley. Her husband's name is Larry. I actually have never met Shirley or Larry, but I know about their store. It's called Heaven. It's a store very close to where Betty Ann and I and our family lived in Pennsylvania. And since then, I've read several interviews that they've done for a local newspaper. So although I don't know them and I've never been in their store, I know something about their store because of the locale of it and because I am interested and have read interviews of them. If you walk into heaven, Shirley will take a little wand and she'll wave it at you and she'll smile and say, I just smudged you. It's her way of giving a blessing. She believes that by smudging you, somehow she increases your intellectual capacity. They sell a number of items that are associated with the occult, like bowie knives that are used to carve symbols into certain types of candles. They sell tarot cards and horoscopes and crystals and charms and Ouija boards and the like. She's very quick to tell you that they're into white magic. Then her husband adds, yeah, we don't do black magic, only white magic, and we only give white spells. She says if somebody walks in and are interested in black magic, they'll immediately turn them around and either send them out or introduce them to their master, who is Christ. She then goes on to say, my master is Christ, but I believe in other deities as well. And she tells us that she is a Christian as well as a Wiccan. Now, there are lots of definitions for Wiccan, but how she defines it is as follows. She believes that there is an energy force all around, and she connects to that energy force. She believes that there is a multiplicity of deities, not just one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but many deities. And she believes that she has been given a great gift to extend to others. And again, I've never met Shirley. I've never met Larry. I've never been in their story heaven or their, their uh, store heaven. But I suspect that they are very sincere people. But their form of syncretism, mixing different faith systems, is not logical. The Bible is very clear that there is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And there is only way to, one way to salvation. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or call upon the name of the Lord and then you will be saved. The Bible is very clear. And although Cheryl and Larry are sincere, it is not logical to hold Christianity and Wiccan because they are faith systems that cannot be syncretized. They are very opposed to one another. In fact, the Bible is very clear when it comes to things of the occult. Let me just read from the Old Testament because I'm going to be in the New Testament in a bit. In Deuteronomy 18, 10 to 18, it says this, There shall not be found among you Anyone who burns his son or his daughter is an offering. Anyone who practices divination, that is spells, or tells fortunes or interprets omens, that might be like horoscopes or signs of the zodiac, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium, or a necromancer, that is someone who attempts to connect with someone who has died. Maybe a parent has lost a child or... Uh, a child has lost a parent and they attempt to interact with someone who is deceased. The Bible says that is not of the Lord. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. So I doubt that Shirley, who is sincere, understands this. And she does tell us that she has a great gift to offer and when she does that, that's a bit self-aggrandizing, is it not? And actually, that's just like the man in Acts chapter 8 named Simon, who is a sorcerer, who is very about himself. He is very self-aggrandizing. What does Scripture say about self-aggrandizement? God says, I oppose the proud, and I give strength to the weak. Or listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. He says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So what are we to proclaim? We are to proclaim Christ. We are to brag about Christ. We are to point people to Christ. That's very different than the individual in today's text. His name is Simon. I'd like to pick up and read from Acts chapter 8. I'll start in verses 9 to 12. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Like surely Simon points to himself. He allows people to think he's great. He even talks about himself as the great one. He is a self-aggrandizing individual. And yet Paul tells us very clearly, we preach Christ. 
I can almost picture what goes on. You kind of picture this side barker who walks around saying, peanuts, get your peanuts, prepare yourself for the greatest show in all of Samaria. Prepare yourself to be wowed by this man named Simon. Get your peanuts, snuggle into your chair, and prepare yourself. Simon was about himself, and he was about his form of magic or sorcery. Now, when the Bible uses the word sorcery, NIV, or magic, ESV, from Magian, generally it doesn't mean sleight of hand. Oh, I think from time to time that's what it means, but more often than not, it actually refers to a counterfeit miracle. It refers to someone who, whether they know it or not, or whether they intend it or not, are interacting with the demonic world, and Satan has everything to gain by allowing some of the laws of physics to be temporarily stopped in order to take eyes off of God and onto man. That's exactly what happens in Exodus chapter 7. You remember the account. The Jews have been in bondage in Egypt for a number of years. They're under the thumb of a man named Pharaoh. And God raises up Moses and his brother Aaron. And Moses comes into Pharaoh. And Moses speaks for God and says, let my people go. And you remember that eventually there will be a number of plagues. And Pharaoh will send the people out. But before then, there is this initial exchange. And Moses takes his rod, his staff, and he throws it down and it turns into a serpent. And frankly, Pharaoh is not that impressed. And Pharaoh calls in some of his own sorcerers, some of his magicians. They throw down their staff, and they also turn into serpents. I don't think the text is telling us it's sleight of hand. I think they, in some way, empowered by the demonic, were able to cast their staff down and turn into serpents. But you remember the rest of the text, don't you? We have Moses' serpent who swallows up all of the magician's serpents, making it clear who is in control, who is all-powerful. It is not Satan. It is God. Tragically, we are several thousands of years from that event, and we still have not given up on the occult. If we walk into a modern bookstore today of intelligent individuals, we still have several rows of books on the occult. And we're taught how to interact with charms. And we're taught to, how to interact with crystals and feng shui. We're taught how to, to position furniture in our house so that the energy flows well. And we're given a constant supply of the zodiac and... and uh, horoscopes and palm readers and the like. And it's not that all of these things can't sometimes happen because again, Satan has every advantage in making some of them occur to keep people as customers to take our eyes off of God and onto man in our own circumstances and to predict our own future. But in every way and in all of these situations, the Lord says this is not for a Christ follower. This is not for someone who bows the knee before the Lord. We are to trust God. 
We are to trust God with our future. And we are not to place our confidence in these predictors of the future. Well, when introduced to God's ultimate power, Simon, who has been peddling this stuff for quite some time, he is utterly amazed and he wants a piece of it. So let me pick up in verse 13, and I'm going to read all the way to 24. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria have received the word of God. Remember, we've talked for the last couple weeks. Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. Samaritans have nothing to do with Jews. But Philip understands that God believes that all people are made in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. They matter. And so Philip goes to Samaria. He begins to preach salvation by faith in Christ alone. And Samaritans are coming to Christ. When they have received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money. He said, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, that's really a, a sanitized way of saying, you're going to go to hell with your money. That's really what he wrote in the Greek text. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray to me, or pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this to be a confusing text. First, in verse 13, you read that Simon believes, and then he's baptized, and then you get to 21 to 24, and Peter says, may you go to hell with your money, and you have no part or partial with the king. And it may be that if you repent, God may forgive you. And so it's kind of confusing. Is he a believer? Is he not a believer? Is he going to hell? Is he not going to hell? Can he actually repent? Now I'm going to tip my hand right off the bat. I'm going to tell you what I believe, and then I'm going to try and make a case for it. And I think it won't be until the end of the text, in the end of the sermon, that I'll have made the case solid. But I do not believe he is a believer. I believe that he parroted a sinner's prayer, and then he was baptized, and he won't be the first who has been proclaiming belief in Christ and baptized who has not truly believed in Jesus Christ. I think that's the best way to understand the text. In fact, Peter says to him in verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this manner, for your heart is not right before God. Now those who believe that Simon has truly believed in Christ will point out something from John 13. I think they've misunderstood, but this is what they'll say. The exact same language is used by Jesus 
to Peter when Peter was a believer. Let me set the scene. You remember that Jesus is going to wash the feet of the disciples. And Peter thinks to himself, the Messiah washing my feet? No way. That is not happening. And so he says, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you will have no part or parcel with me. Using the exact same language. But in John 13, Jesus is not saying you're going to lose your salvation, which cannot happen, or you aren't a believer. What Jesus is saying is if I don't wash your feet and I don't demonstrate what real servanthood is like, you can't be part of my team because you won't know what servanthood is like in order to serve others. And when Peter gets that, you remember what he says. Oh, then don't just wash my feet, Jesus. Wash all of me. And Jesus is like, whoa, hold on, boy. Your feet is enough. I'm not washing anything else. We're not having anything more. So it's very different in John chapter 13 than Acts 8, where he is talking about salvation, being part of the family of God. And if... Simon doesn't truly repent because his heart is hard. He is in the gall of bitterness if he doesn't truly repent and turn and believe in Jesus as Savior, not just parroting a prayer. If he doesn't truly believe, he will perish with his money. Simon has no sense of what the Holy Spirit is like. He thinks he can purchase the Holy Spirit. In fact, you who know Christ... Know that at the moment in which you came to Christ, the Holy Spirit actually entered into you, empowering you, empowering me to begin to turn from sin and towards righteousness. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Until we inquire possession of it, we go home to glory, to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is not something that one can purchase. The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. It's beyond our imagination. And yet Simon thought he could purchase the Holy Spirit. And he wanted to purchase the Holy Spirit as another trick in his cadre so that he could impress others so that they would point to him as the great one rather than to God. That actually is called simony. This comes out of history and it comes right out of Acts 8. Now what I'm about to say is not Catholic. It's not Protestant. It's really from the 4th century to the 16th century AD. It's actually before 1517, when there is a split in Christendom between the protests who became Protestants and the universal church, which is Catholic. From 313 onward, we have Emperor Constantine of the Roman Empire who issues the Edict of Milan and legalizes Christianity. And for the first time, you can actually tell others about Christ without being arrested for your faith. Christianity is now legal. But soon after, we drift into the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages, and things get very dark in the church. They get very dark in all of Europe and all of the Western world. 
And the truth of the matter is many clergy were not only not educated, they were illiterate. And many of the clergy would actually purchase the church that they would preach in. They would purchase the office that they had and in turn, they would get a certain percentage of the offering and the rest would go to the universal church. And that actually led to pluralism because, hey, if I'm gonna get a cut from one church, why not have four or five? I can get a cut from four or five every single week. And so pastors began to purchase multiple churches. That was called simony. We actually have some bishoprics that were worshipped. We have some red hats that were worshipped. In fact, we know that there was some influence several times with white hats in terms of money being used to gain an office to lead the Christian church. All of that is called simony. And we would say, okay, but that doesn't occur today. And it really doesn't in that form. But it might occur in another form. It might be that a very well-heeled attender, this has not happened at Highland in the 20 years I've been here, but a well-heeled attender might say, you know what? I want what I want, and if you don't do what I want, my pocketbook and I are going to go down the street. That would be a form of simony that's using finances in order to influence church or ecclesiastical decisions. But we know that what we give to the Lord is between us and the Lord. It's a sanctification issue, isn't it? And in Matthew 6, 3, and 4, we read that what you give, in this case to the needy, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, and that which is done in secret is rewarded by God who sees what is done in secret. In other words, what we give to the Lord is between us and the Lord. It's not to be used for financial gain. But Simon, in our text, wanted to purchase the power of the Holy Spirit to gain more acclaim among the Samaritans and really to help his bottom line. He is utterly lost. As I've intimated, I don't believe that Simon is a believer. Even though verse 13 says Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. I think the rest of the text and the rest of history suggests that he fooled Philip. That happens all the time, right? It's very possible that we would tell someone how to receive Christ and somebody would just parrot a prayer after us, say the words, but not really have a heart transformation, even be baptized because baptism is a declaration after believing that one has been saved and yet one has not truly believed in Christ. It's very easy to have this happen. I think of Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, a very interesting passage, one that lots of Christians go to and they say, I don't really know what to do with it because he says it was enlightened. It says he tasted of the heavenly gift. It says he tasted of the word of God. He even tasted of the power to come. Those phrases are all used in Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, and yet the individual is not a believer. What are we to do with that? Well, don't we have an incredible example in Judas Iscariot? In Matthew 26, 15, he sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Did he not 
have the enlightenment of Jesus' teachings. We read a few of them. He heard them all. We read a few of the miracles. He saw them in person. He tasted of the power. He heard the word of God. Every phrase in Hebrews 6, 4 to 6 was true in Judas's life. And yet what does scripture say? He was the devil from the beginning. I think that's what we have here with Simon. He was enlightened. He heard the miracles. He saw the teachings. Flip that around. He heard the teachings. He saw the miracles. He was impacted by Philip's ministry. He was desirous of what he saw in the power of the Holy Spirit. So he parroted a prayer and Peter said, you are in the gall of bitterness. You have no part or parcel with us. There was no transformation. Believer in Jesus, if you and I have truly placed our faith in Christ, there will be incremental change in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It doesn't say there might be, there could be, there should be, there ought to be. It doesn't, doesn't say that we have mastery over any of them. We don't. But there is a perseverance in our lives, a transformation. There is actual fruit. Isn't that what James says in James 2, 14 to 26? He says, faith, if it isn't followed or accompanied by works, is dead. James is not saying that we earn our way to heaven. How can unholy beings earn our way into the presence of a holy God? We can't. That's why Jesus died, to pay for our sin and to rise again, to conquer death, to offer salvation. We can't earn our way to heaven, but having believed in Christ, the Holy Spirit enters into us and we begin incrementally to change, to be transformed, to develop fruit. That's why James says that faith without works is utterly dead. I think of what John writes in 1 John 2.19. And this is very important in the life of Simon. He said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. In other words, what John is saying is that a true believer, yes, sometimes backslides, sometimes takes one step forward, two steps back, absolutely true. We know this true in our life, but a true believer over a long period of time will see change, will see transformation, and though we wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to lead the God I love, though we wander, we will come back. Those who don't come back have given evidence that they never belonged to the Lord. That is Simon. You see, we know a lot about Simon outside of Scripture. Most of the early historians wrote to us about Simon. I think of Justin Martyr. In the second century, he was an apologist and a historian. And in fact, he's very significant because he's a Samaritan. He's writing about his own people. And he tells us that not long after this event, Simon demanded that people call him the highest God. 
He demanded the claim of deity. Not one God and three persons that we worship. He claimed himself to be God and demanded that people worshiped him. That's Justin Martyr in his book, Apology. I think of Irenaeus in his book, Against Heresies, a second century historian. I also think of Eusebius in his ecclesiastical history, probably the greatest historian of the ancient world. They both tell us that Simon was in on proto-Gnosticism. Proto means in second, beginning. It really begins at the end of the first century and grows in the second and third. And Gnosticism doesn't believe that one is saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Gnosticism taught that you had to be in this mystery religion. You had to unpack all these secrets and get further and further into this mystery religion. And if you get far enough before you die, then you are saved. And here we have two historians telling us that one of the founders of Gnosticism is R. Simon. I think of Hippolytus, who is also a great historian. He talks about him in both the Great Discourse and Refutation of All Heresies. And he tells us a remarkable ending to Simon's life. And rather than tell it to you, I want to read it to you. This is from Refutation of All Heresies, 6 and 15. Simon came to Rome and fell afoul of the apostles. What we know is that when Peter went back to Rome, Simon followed him. And rather than supporting Peter as Peter proclaimed Christ, Simon often got in the way of Peter and actually interrupted messages and the like. He was a, he was a constant pest. Simon came to Rome and fell afoul of the apostles. Peter withstood him on many occasions. At last, Simon began teaching sitting under a plane, P-L-A-N-E, tree. When he was on the point of being shown up, he said in order to gain time, that if he were buried alive, he would rise again on the third day. That kind of sounds familiar. So he bade that a tomb should be dug by his disciples and that he should be buried in it. Now they did what they were ordered, but he remained there until now, for he was not the Christ. That was the ending of Simon. And so if you put all of that together, it's rather difficult to believe that Simon is a believer in Jesus. So I would like to conclude today this way. Don't put confidence in parroting a few words. Don't put confidence in the waters of baptism. Don't put confidence in going to church or in confirmation or partaking of the Lord's Supper or Eucharist. Put your confidence in Christ. Put your confidence in Christ. Believe by faith that you are a sinner, you, I, we are sinners in need of a Savior and ask Jesus, his death to be the payment of your sin, his resurrection to be evidence of life after the grave. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by grace, grace is not something we earn, it's something that is given to us undeserved. For by grace you are saved through faith. 
Not of yourselves, not of works. We can't earn our salvation. It's a gift of God so none of us can boast. Don't leave today without your confidence being only in Christ. And finally, I would say that individuals like Simon, even leaders like Simon, will disappoint. God never disappoints. And notice that the rest of the passage says that although Simon, I think, does not believe and actually shipwrecks his life, it says that several other Samaritan villages believed because that's the power of God. Even when people reject, there are others who receive. And we who have been commissioned to share the gospel, we might have individuals say no. And we might be disappointed that some will not receive Christ. But press on. Because when you have the privilege of sharing Christ with someone. And they receive Christ as Savior. It transforms their life and their eternity. And it is such a joy in your life. To be used by God in the life of someone else. So press on. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for the book of Acts. I thank you for these accounts, true accounts, historical accounts that we have from the Bible that teach us theology, doctrine, the gospel. And Father, as James warns, we don't just want to hear them, we want to be transformed by them. We don't want to be hearers of the word only and deceive ourselves, but we want to be doers as well. And Father, if there's someone here that does not know Jesus, may by faith they believe in Christ, confessing, agreeing that we are sinners, we are wrong actions, thoughts, motives, inactivities, accepting Jesus' death, as the payment of our sin and his resurrection as evidence of life after the grave. And may we believe and receive Jesus cleansed of our sin, granted eternal life. And we who know Christ, may we take the next step and may your spirit develop fruit in us and may we tell others about your son, Jesus. It's in the name of Christ we pray, amen.